Okay, before we begin, I want to share a quick message for those podcast listeners that are not here live. Over the summer, we're going to have a little bit of a lighter schedule. Not every week will we have a new history podcast, so you can check that out. Follow on the website or on Twitter to see when there's a new podcast. And also, uh, if you ever want to email me, the email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Tonight, we're going to be discussing the history of false messiahs. Now, the idea of the messiah, the idea of Mashiach, and the imperative to await his arrival is a core tenet of Judaism. It's one of the six questions Talmud says in the book of Shabbos, page 31, that a person's asked after they die and are brought to judgment. One of the questions is, Tzipis Yoshua, did you await redemption? So obviously it's one of the core tenets, the core uh, principles of Jewish faith. Uh, also, the Rambam, when he codifies what we believe as Jews, one of the things is, uh, one of the 13 principles of faith is to believe in Mashiach. Now, sadly, ignorance of what exactly Mashiach is, what he is supposed to do, how to vet the Mashiach, what are the implications of Mashiach, that coupled with people's naivete, gullibility, and even at times vulnerability has allowed over the course of history several imposters to make false messianic claims with disastrous consequences to their adherents and to the nation at large. These false messiahs have caused our nation untold suffering and tragedy. When the false messiah, when it all collapses, they leave behind them a trail of despair, of disunity, of infighting, of recriminations, of shattered hopes and dreams. Uh, moreover, due to the messianic fervor of many times in history, people get consumed with the idea. They sell their possessions on pennies on the dollar. They move. They make very aggressive stances against their non-Jewish neighbors and overlords. And then when it collapses... They have to rebuild their tattered lives. Uh, false messiahs also contribute to spiritual setbacks as well. Uh, the Jewish pride, Jewish resolve gets a hammering after a false messiah claimant uh, is found to be a fraud. And sadly, due to some of the false messiahs in our history, many Jews have gone astray, even converted to other religions. So I want to start by examining what exactly Mashiach is, what are the sources say, what he's supposed to do, and then we're going to look at some of the highlights of the mess, uh, highlights, lowlights uh, of false messiahs throughout history, their story, and how the Jews suffered as a result. Also along the way, we're hopefully going to clear away some misconceptions about what Mashiach is, because Many times uh, there are misconceptions that li- enable false messiahs to thrive. So in order to get a comprehensive guide of what Mashiach is and what he needs to do, we go to the Rambam. The Rambam, he gives us, he's the most comprehensive source in this matter. In the very end of his code of the Yad at the end of the laws of kings, he guides us into determining who is Mashiach and what Mashiach does. 
So the pers- personal qualifications of Mashiach are as follows. This is a king, a direct descendant of the house of David, who studies the written and oral Torah with intensity, like David, his ancestor, performs mitzvos like David. He is going to lead the Jews back to Torah. He's going to fight the wars of Hashem. It's not clear if that's literal wars or spiritual wars. Uh, but critically, Messiah doesn't need to do any miracles. We don't ask him to perform any miracles. If, if he has those qualifications and he has these accomplishments that I'm going to list in a second, we know as Mashiach. What are these accomplishments? To reestablish the Davidic monarchy, to rebuild the temple on Temple Mount, to gather the Jews from the four corners of the earth, from the most far-flung parts of the world, to reestablish Jewish law over Israel, to reinstitute sacrifices in the temple, to reinstitute the laws of the calendar, Shemitah and Yovel, agricultural laws, and to fix the entire world to worship God, means to bring not just the Jews back to God, bring the non-Jews back to God as well. And also, an important limiting factor, Mashiach cannot add nor subtract from the Torah. If Mashiach comes and says, this mitzvah no longer applies, or this prohibition no longer applies, or changes it, that's a sure sign of a false Messiah. Moreover, Mashiach is more than an individual, it's also an era, an idea, a time period. There's many sources in, in scripture, the Raman brains, Jews will be living peacefully with security with their neighbors. Uh, there's this famous metaphor of the wolf and the lamb living together at peace. Uh, there's going to be a rise of morality and embracing of faith amongst the Gentiles. There's going to be plenty. There's not going to be war. There's going to be less competition, harmful competition. Uh, there's going to be a pursuit a national, international, worldwide pursuit of Torah, of Torah knowledge, of knowledge of God. Critically, the Rambam is of the opinion that the halacha follows Shmuel, ein bein olam azelim as Mashiach, that there's no, there's no difference between modern times, life as we know it, and the times of Mashiach, only shibud malchius bilvad, only the fact that we are no longer subjugated to the kingdoms. So those are the, that's kind of the structure of Mashiach, what he is, what he accomplishes, and what era he will spawn. Now, the Ramam gives us some advice as well, which I think is important for our discussion. Uh, he says that there's a debate amongst the opinions whether Elijah the prophet will come before the Mashiach arrives or not. And he says that all these matters, all these questions about the Mashiach, no one knows the answer. No one knows what's going to be until it happens. Even the prophets don't know the exact details of what's going to happen. And therefore, he tells us, importantly, gives us very good advice that it's not a prior- priority for us to think too much about Mashiach, about the details, uh, about the specifics of it. Don't think about it because it won't bring you not to love of God and not to fear of God. Our objective as Jews is to try to achieve love of God and fear of God. Those are the two twin pillars of Jewish life. Thinking about the Mashiach doesn't bring us to either one of them. Additionally, another advice he tells us to not to try to calculate or prognosticate his arrival. People tend to, uh, at various times in history, say, well, this is a harbinger of Mashiach. This is 
the birth pains of Mashiach, the Hevle Mashiach. I know my grandfather wrote that someone, unless they are a prophet, cannot point to any event or series of events or trends and say, this is a harbinger of Mashiach. This is something that's going to bring Mashiach. Uh, another thing uh, important before we get started into the into the details here, and I think this misconception contribute or has contributed to some of the false messiahs that we're going to talk about. Uh, there's this misconception that when things are going tough, when the nation perhaps is reeling from tragedy, or we are subjected to severe decrees, we need alleviation from the misery. There's a heightening of messianic anticipation, almost as if the Messiah is the easy way out, easy way out of any predicament. But that it exposes a vulnerability. Uh, it opens the door for cheats, for frauds, for charlatans and their cohorts to make claims of false messiahs. Now, there is a Jewish tradition that when things are bad, we always think about the fact that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but it's important for us to keep it in context because many times throughout history, when things were bad and messianic anticipation is high, uh, that we are vulnerable to such uh, people bearing such stories. Now, it's also important to remember that every false messiah is different. There are some of them that are just total frauds, total imposters that make up a story, snake oil sell- salesmen, and they sell it and people buy it. Others are sincere, but they're misguided. Uh, And there's yet others who indeed maybe had messianic potential that wasn't actualized for one reason or another. One of the people we're going to talk about today, Bar Kochba, the great Rabbi Kiva, thought he was a worthy candidate. Turns out he's one of the false messiahs. But it doesn't mean that there was nothing there. But each one of these false messiahs either spiraled into its own religion or it fizzled out. But I think the lesson for us before we get started is that as of right now, we're still waiting. Mashiach has not yet come. But the fact, you know, the fact is that this is contested. Uh, there are several false claimants of Messiah. And now we're going to talk about some of the most famous and most destructive of them. So, the first false messiah on our list is J.C. Now, of course, the historicity of J.C. is dubious at best. Uh, Did he even exist? It's a legitimate historical question. Is this one character? Is this multiple characters? We know that even Jewish sources seem to imply that there's at least two or even three characters that share some of the characteristics of JC. So is it one character or is it a composite? Uh, what exactly is he to his believers? Is he some sort of messianic figure or some sort of deity? But for our purposes, it's abundantly clear that JC fulfilled none of the personal requirements of the Messiah. He didn't do any of the requisite tasks of the Messiah. And clearly, the Messianic era is not underway. Now, these questions are well-documented, 
And in response to these questions, the adherents of JC, they counter, the, yeah, well, he didn't do it quite yet, but he's coming back. And of course, that's a very convenient solution. Uh, but when the central claim is bereft of any evidence to say that evidence will come later in the future, that essentially is an admission that there's no evidence now. Uh, now, Jewish sources, they talk about Mashiach fulfilling the prophecies and the accomplishments in the first go-around. Uh, the notion of a second coming doesn't exist. But more granularly, putting that aside, uh, JC does not qualify at all to become the Jewish Mashiach. First of all, there's no evidence for it. All the alleged evidence is bogus. Uh, even you know the Christian texts themselves are not contemporary to these stories, and they're full of errors. Uh, but for example, so the Mashiach has to be a descendant of King David. Uh, in the Christian scriptures, there's actually two, they try to attribute J.C. back to King David, and they have two entirely divergent genealogical paths back to David. Uh, moreover, the whole notion of a virgin birth doesn't jive with the idea of descending from the house of David. How could you come from the house of David when we don't know who your dad is? It, it always comes, no one questions that, that the descendants of David are from the father's side, a direct descendant of uh, King David. Uh, moreover, we know that J.C. departed from the ways, from the traditions of David. The Christian sources themselves talk about J.C. desecrating the Shabbos. You know, J.C. did not bring the Jews back to Torah. In fact, he tried to do the opposite with varying degrees of success. Uh, we spoke about this a few weeks ago. The Ramban, in his disputation of Barcelona, he has six days of refuting any supposed evidence of the Messianic credentials of J.C. And he writes, he says, well, the Mashiach is supposed to bring the Jews from all over, bring them back to Israel, and J.C. didn't accomplish that at all. Uh, also, J.C. was during the time when the temple was extant. The prophecies talk about Mashiach rebuilding the temple, and J.C. didn't destroy the temple nor rebuild it. Moreover, we talk about Mashiach being a king who rules over many nations. And Ramban writes, J.C. didn't even rule over himself. He didn't have self-control to rule over, over himself, much less other nations. And of course, the claim that we are now, in the past 2,000 years, amid a peaceful, blissful, tranquil, and serene messianic era is, of course, ludicrous. Now, What's important to stress is that the JC movement did not actually make significant inroads amongst the Jews. They knew right away he was a fraud. And the movement really only gained momentum after Paul abrogated the law. And he opens the door for Gentiles who want the Jewish theology or a dabbing of Jewish theology, but didn't want to convert, didn't want to do all the work. And that, of course, took off because... During that time, Judaism was a very exotic religion, the idea of one God. 
was very popular at the time. And it garnered tremendous interest from the people of uh, – they came in contact with the Jews. And therefore, uh, when Paul came around and he founded their religion, it really broke off from Jewry. It wasn't no longer a subsect of Jewry and it became its own thing. Now, we talk about false messiahs being a really bad thing for Jews. I think the extent of the Jews' suffering – thanks to this false messiah, is very well documented. We know, we spoke about this, many Jews were killed as a result. Apostasy was at various times forced upon the Jews. Other times, uh, Jews voluntarily converted. Uh, Most notably in the 19th century, the belief in Europe that the only ticket to citizenship and equality in the Christian world was baptism. And over 250,000 Jews converted. Some of them are quite famous, like Benjamin Disraeli, who became the Prime Minister of England, and Karl Marx at the age of six. He too was baptized in the 19th century. Uh, Now, I want to add, before we finish with this false messiah, an important note from the Rambam regarding the role that Christianity and Islam they play in the global march of progress. We call that tikkun olam. The idea of Mashiach is tikkun olam, where the world learns about God and accepts that, and thus the fundamental flaw of the world is fixed. But the Rambam writes that there's an important role that Christianity and Islam need to play. They're the ones who are going to take at least the notion of a God-given Torah with mitzvahs, with Messiah, and spread that to the masses. You know, we have billions of monotheists, and we can, of course, debate, are Christians really monotheists? But Deotasius writes that there's that, that the Romans had in excess of 30,000 gods. Now, even if the Christians believe in three, that is a long way closer to monotheism than 30,000. And of course, the Muslims, who are going to eclipse Christians in number very soon, uh, they actually believe in the same God that we do. Now, there is, of course, problems with the application of those ideas. But says the Rambam, the objective of these religions are to clear the way, to straighten the path, to make Mashiach's job easier, he doesn't need to take a nation, a world, from 30,000 gods to one. He needs to do from three to one. Much easier. And the Muslims already believe in that. He just needs to tweak the application of that away from Islam to Noahide laws. And that's a much easier transition. Jason, the first century of the Common Era. Uh, The next false messiah appears in the middle of the second century, uh, and his name is Shimon Bar Kochba, alternatively known as Shimon Bar Koziva. And he led a rebellion against the Romans in in the 130s that was initially very successful. Now, the backstory to this is... Uh, that Hadrian, 
became emperor of Rome in the year 117. Initially, he was quite friendly to the Jews. He rebuilt destroyed synagogues and rebuilt Jewish homes. He even proposed rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. But he had a change of heart, and especially with his attitude towards the Jews. And he decided in the 120s to institute very crippling decrees for forbidding all the things that were forbidden during the times of the Hasmonean Revolt under Antiochus, uh, namely the laws of Nida, teaching Torah publicly, observing Shabbos, bris milah. Uh, he forced those that did have a circumcision to undo it. He rebuilt Jerusalem as a pagan city. He built a temple for idolatry on Temple Mount. Jews were banned from entering Jerusalem a pain of death. And the Jews got agitated. They, got this, they, they didn't take this quietly. And the most successful of all revolts in Roman history began. Uh, it was led by Shimon Bar Kochba. He was a man of tremendous physical strength, also a tremendous scholar. Uh, he rallies the troops. They begin a guerrilla war from caves. And they're remarkably successful. And ultimately, they're confident enough to face the Romans in open battle. The army swells. They reach 200,000 warriors, ultimately ballooning to 400,000. They're successful in recapturing Jerusalem, uh, even minted coins to celebrate that. We have a physician in town, Dr. Monk, who is a collector of uh, Jewish memorabilia and antiques. And he has bags and bags full of these Bar Kochba coins. And it's also interesting that uh, initially the Bar Kochba story and revolt was almost entirely limited to Jewish sources. In modern time, there's been a wealth of archaeological discoveries that have proved proven beyond any question that he did exist. But what's his story, uh, at least from a Jewish perspective? The Talmud gives us a scant details about Bar Kochba, Bar Kaziva. And what it does say is really interesting. Bar Koziva Molach Tartin Shananupalder. He was a king for two and a half years. And he tells the rabbis, Ano Mashiach. I am Mashiach. And they said to him, A Mashiach, he's going to smell and judge. He's going to have such a, such a keen sense of justice. He could just smell someone and know if he's righteous or innocent. Doesn't need to hear any testimony. And they said, okay, let's see. Let's test him. Can he smell and judge or not? And he smelled and judged and was unsuccessful and they killed him. That's what it says in the Talmud. Now, some of the commentaries, they use this as a question of the Rambam. If you remember, the Rambam said that the Mashiach does not need to do any miracles. It seems like they were asking for a miracle from Bar Kokhba. Got to smell and judge. The question they asked in the Rambam. So there's many answers to that question, but one of them is that what this really means, not that he actually literally smells a subject and determines if he's guilty or innocent. What it means is, let's see if he has a sense for justice or does he rule in error? And when they saw that he ruled in error, they realized that he was a fraud. What was this episode where he ruled in error? This is the episode of his uncle, 
Rabbi Alazar Hamodai. And that story we get in great and gory detail in the Midrash of the book of Eicha. I want to read to you what the Midrash says here. It starts off by talking about Rabbi Tiva was convinced that Bar Kokhba was Mashiach. And he would tell everyone, Hainu Malka Mashiach, this is the King Mashiach. One of his colleagues disagreed. They said to Mativa, you're wrong. Grass will grow on your cheeks and Mashiach will not yet have come. And the backstory of, his, uh, of this revolt, he was successful. Uh, but ultimately, Hadrian recalled his greatest general from Britain, Julius Severus, began to repel the revolt. And they started attacking piecemeal. So they would kind of edge the territory of the revolt, take town after town, finally recapture Jerusalem, and all the forces of Bar Kokhba end up in a city called Betar, a fortified city of Betar, where the Romans laid siege for three and a half years. Ultimately, Hadrian was able to break through and... According to the Jewish numbers, 800,000 people were slaughtered, including 80,000 heads of legions, which seems like they were officers of Bar Kokhba. So that's kind of the introduction of the story. But let's hear the details. So Ben Koziva, he had 200,000 soldiers lacking fingers. And the reason why is because they... He had developed a warrior culture that said, if you want to join the army, you got to show how tough you are, how macho you are. You got to be man enough to cut off your own finger. If you do that, then we see that you're one of us. You're tough enough to join the army. So 200,000 people joined that way. And the rabbi said to him, how long do you insist on making the Jews, the young Jews, blemished? Well, he says, well, how can I, how can, if I can't do this test, what test can I do? He says, well, see who could uproot a tree with her bare hands. You got uproot a tree with her bare hands, shows you strong enough uh, to be in part of this army. Eventually, the army swells to 400,000, and they develop a heretical mantra. Their motto becomes, they tell God, don't help us. We got this. Just don't help help the enemy. And they, they were so confident in their military acuity. The Midrash even describes that they would take catapults and Bar Kokhba himself would fling the catapult and with one stone he'd kill a multitude of men. But unfortunately, their tide turned once they abandoned God. Now, what was the secret to their endurance? So they they were besieged for three and a half city for three and a half years. The secret to their endurance was Rav Allah's Ramudai. He was one of the great sages of the time. In fact, you look at the Mishnah and Perkyavos, chapters of the fathers, he's the one who teaches us, among among other things, Hamal bin Pnei Chavero. If someone whitens the face of his friend publicly, they even if they have lots of Torah, lots of mitzvos, they lose their portion in the world to come. Now he, in the city of Betar, he was praying and fasting for three years, three and a half years, 
telling God, praying, beseeching, entreating upon God not to allow the city to fall. And everything the Romans tried to do to break the siege was fruitless. And after three and a half years, Hadrian was about to pack his bats. And there was a Kusi, a Samaritan, who was there. And he knew the reason why the Jews had survived thus far. And he said, give me a chance. I'm going to be the one. I'm going to get rid of the cause of their survival. And you're about to take him over. So this Kuthi, this Kuthian, this Samaritan, he slips into the city. And he goes over to Rabbi Elazar Mudai, who's praying. And he starts whispering into his ear. Whispering just gibberish into his ear. But everyone notices what's happening. This strange person comes and speaks to this rabbi who's praying. And what's the deal? So they interrogate this individual. And what you tell him? What's going on? What's this secret conversation that you're having? And he says, well, I can't tell you. They bring him before Bar Kokhba. And Barcoma says, well, what do you talk about? I can't tell you. If I tell you, you'll kill me. If I don't tell you, I'll tell you anyhow. And he tells him that Rabbi Elazar Mudai wants to cut a deal with Hadrian, wants to end the siege. He's sick and tired of praying. And he wants to expose the vulnerabilities of the town. And right away, they rush in Rabbi Elazar Mudai. And they say, well, what do you talk to this Trusi about? This Trusi, I don't know, it's no Trusi, I was praying. And Bar Kochba Bar Koziva got so angry with him, he gave him a kick, and he killed the frail rabbi. At that time, it became clear the Jewish people lost their protector, they lost their merit, and the city was doomed. And ultimately, the calamity of Betar, it rivaled that of the destruction of the temple itself. Now, this is even according to Roman sources. Deo Cassius, he writes that the slaughter was of more than a half a million people. The Midrash writes that there was so much blood that the horses, they were choking in rivers of blood. Uh, the Talmud says that there were streams of blood that provided so much fertilizer that the non-Jews who were cultivating their farms, they didn't need to add fertilizer for seven years. And now, after the fall of Betar, Hadrian intensified his efforts to destroy the Jews uh, he kicked off what's known as the Shmad, which is the attempt of forced uh, apostasy upon the Jews. Uh, we have the story of the Ten Martyrs. He killed Rabbi Tiva in horrific fashion. Hanina uh, Batradio was wrapped in a Torah scroll and burned alive. And he renames Jerusalem. He renames Shechem, becomes Neopolis. Jerusalem becomes Aelia Capitolina. Judah is renamed Philistinia. And he even takes Temple Mount and plows the mountain, lowers it by some estimates, even a thousand feet, pledging it'll never be rebuilt again. Uh, thus concluded uh, this horrific episode of a false messiah. Uh, now, the aftermath of the rebellion um, resulted in the notion of reinstituting sovereignty or rebuilding the temple, any form of armed resistance against the Romans that was squelched, and the Jews realized that there's going to be a very long exile, 
with lots of instability, they can never be sure that they'll be safe and secure and living in peace under Roman rule. And if you remember, in the earlier talks about history, in the earlier podcasts, we talked about all the great rabbis that arose from this episode to preserve Torah, like Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Shimon, who recognized the Torah and the transmission of Torah was under assault, and they took dramatic and heroic steps to ensure that it will not be forgotten. Indeed, the legacy of Bar Koziva is quite shameful and, and tragic. Now, over the course of the next millennium or so, there were a few false messiahs, but none that really had major impacts on the Jews. In the 16th century, on the heels of the expulsion of Jews from Spain and the expulsion of Jews from Portugal, another fraudster emerged by the name of David Reuveni. Now again, we see the theme that when things are bad, there's disasters, people are being forced to become conversos or moranos or new Christians as they were called. And people look at these events and they conclude that this must be the beginning of the Messianic era, it must be the birth pains of Mashiach, and therefore they were uniquely susceptible to imposters. And in 1524, so 32 years after the expulsion, a strange and mysterious and charismatic man, and many false messiahs are charismatic, he arrives in Venice calling himself David Haruveni, David from Ruvain. Now, where he comes from is a little bit obscure, uh, but he appeared uh, earlier in Cairo, introducing himself as an ambassador of the Ten Lost Tribes. And he escaped, he's with the Ten Lost Tribes somewhere in Arabia, and he escaped from the Ten Lost Tribes from across the Sambakion River. And eventually he ends up in Venice and starts sharing his story. And ultimately he even is granted a meeting with the Pope, Pope Clement VII. And in the audience, the Pope authorizes him to create a coalition of his alleged Jewish army. He claims that his army of 300,000 Jews, along with European Christian armies, to go capture the Holy Land from the Ottomans. That was the plan. So he goes to Portugal. Uh, he's greeted by the conversos as a liberator, which, of course, exposed them, the fact that they were living double lives. Uh, but despite the fact that Portugal had gone out of its way to suppress the Jews, the king granted him ambassadorial status. Now, the rabbis saw him as a charlatan, but he made tremendous headway uh, amongst the masses. Uh, he got people riled up and excited and ignited a flame of messianic fervor that captured all of Europe. Uh, now, he infuriated the church by openly teaching Torah to conversos in Portugal. He even converted a Muslim girl to Judaism. And he, after a decade of traveling all through Europe and getting the masses fired up, he disappeared. Uh, it's it's thought that he was actually killed by the Inquisition 
but no one knows for sure. Now, one of his students, a young Portuguese converso by the name of Diego Perez, he grew up barely even knowing that he was Jewish. Uh, He is awakened by this traveling adventurer. He's excited by it. He says, oh, I want to become, I want to become Jewish. And he goes over to this David Ravain says, well, circumcise me. He says, David Ravain says, I'm not circumcising you. I don't want to start up with the authority to circumcise a converso who's living like a Christian. Not going to do that. So he decides to circumcise himself, renames himself Shlomo Malcho. And he eventually travels to Turkey. He studies Torah with Rabbi Yosef Cairo. He goes to Israel and he becomes legit. He becomes a rabbi. And in fact, the sources from the time showed that the rabbis actually believed that he was a special person. And he eventually met the Pope as well. And he too sold the Pope uh, his big, grandiose plans. He made a series of predictions that turned out to be remarkably accurate. And he too, it seems clear, had messianic ambitions. Uh, but while David Rouveni's ambitions were overt, his were closely held. His were covert. Eventually, he refused to recant his return to Judaism, and he was burnt at the stake by the Inquisition, ending this strange episode of false messiahs of the 15th century. In the 16th century, perhaps the most destructive false messiah of all arose and his name is Shabtai Tzvi Yemach Shemo. May his name be blotted out. Now, he rose to prominence in the aftermath of the Chmelnitsky massacres of 1648 and 1649. We spoke about Chmelnitsky in the past, but he uh, organized revolts of Ukrainian Cossacks against the wealthy Polish landowners, and he undertook a campaign, a half-a-year campaign, of rampaging through Poland and Ukraine and Lithuania and slaughtering Jewish community after Jewish community. Uh, There was a bloodbath of unmatched brutality. Uh, Within six months, more than 100,000 Jews are slaughtered and hundreds of Jewish communities are ravaged. This event, it's known in Hebrew, as the Zeros Tachvatat, the decrees of Tachvatat, which is the years of 5,408 and 9. This evoked a tremendous renaissance, a rebirth, uh, a spiritual rebirth for the people, but it also spawned the rise of the greatest charlatan of them all, the most nefarious far messiah, uh, false messiah, he was born in Smyrna in Turkey, in Western Turkey, in 1626. Uh, allegedly, he was born in Tishabov, but that was probably embellished to bolster his messianic credentials because there is some sources in Jewry that talk about Messiah being born on Tishabov. And that, of course, could be understood Literally, but it's also metaphorically that out of the ashes, out of the despair and destruction, we have rebirth. Either way, this Shabtai Tzvi is a brilliant but really strange and really 
eccentric young man. Uh, he became, he received smichat as a teenager and began learning Kabbalah on his own. And he starts to exhibit really strange enigmatic behavior. He would engage in self-flagellation. He was an ascetic who would visit the mikvah all the time, claimed to have dreams and visions. At the age of 24, he's already married twice, uh, having yet uh, to consummate his marriage. And the majority of the community looked at him like he's a nutcase, just a strange, crazy bird. Now, ironically, his craziness, his oddness, is actually seen by his followers as proof of his greatness, as strange as that sounds. Either way, he started acting strange, and they kicked him out of town, and he started traveling on exile through different cities, throughout Turkey, throughout Greece, and he continues his bizarre conduct, which just gets stranger. For example, he decides to marry a Sefer Torah. One time he celebrates the three festivals of Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuos all in one week. Uh, he would violate the Torah and justify it. So, for example, is the Tetragram, the ineffable name of God that we're not allowed to pronounce, he starts to pronounce it publicly. He starts eating non-kosher food and saying a special bracha that he invented. Not matir asurim. We say God unshackles the prisoners. He says matir isurim, who permits the forbidden. Makes up a new blessing. And right away, of course, if anyone studied the Rambam, you see the second someone goes against Torah, they expose himself as a fraud. Regardless, he returns to Smyrna. And then he's re-expelled and he travels throughout the world again. He goes to Cairo and he meets this girl named Sarah, also a weirdo. Likely she was a prostitute as well. Together they travel to Jerusalem, to Hebron, to elsewhere. Eventually they end up in Gaza and they meet Natan of Gaza. Natan of Gaza was a soothsayer, a healer of sorts. And it seems likely that Shabtai Tzvi went to him to try to heal him. Someone said to him, listen, dude, you're, you're bipolar, you're schizophrenic, go speak to Natan of Gaza. He meets Natan of Gaza, and Natan of Gaza says, no, you're not strange, you're not crazy, you're not ill, you're Mashiach. And they travel together throughout Israel, and they make proclamations and announcements, the year 1665. Shabtai Tzvi is Mashiach, he's here, Let's celebrate. So they begin this triumphant tour all over Israel. They symbolically encircle Jerusalem seven times. The rabbi of Gaza is all excited. Uh, others view him as charlatans. They're banished from Israel. But their movement becomes unstoppable. They quickly abolish fast days. They send letters to every Jewish community that the Mashiach has arrived. And news, the news cycle, spread and traveled like wildfire uh, with the help of a rumor mill that's quite remarkable. For example, uh, there's news that he conquered Mecca and conquered Medina and he found the Ten Lost Tribes. Of course, none of these things are verifiable and the claims take root. And the Jewish world is in the frenzy that we have it. We reach the, the Mashiach is here. He returns to Smyrna for the third time. People are euphoric. 
He's able, very charismatic, a great Torah scholar, of course, and the majority of Jews join his camp. But he continues to behave in a way that really should expose him, but doesn't. It seems like the people are too excited and too caught up with the hysteria to actually critically examine its claim. He's eating non-kosher food. He's making other people eat non-kosher food. He participates in orgies. Uh, he says the shame of Mephorosh, the ineffable name of God, and demands everyone else do, does that as well. He starts to tinker with the Torah portion, reading the wrong Torah portion. He calls up men and women to the Torah. He slaughters a carbon Pesach and roasts it, and even at one point called himself a god. And the community was divided. There were believers and the non-believers uh, in Shabtai Tzvi. This is a trend that we see with false messiahs, is while they can't convince some, they can never convince everyone, and that causes tremendous infighting and debate and disunity. And there's rabbis on both sides of the matter. And people are pining. They're just hoping for salvation. And he gains followers all over the world. And as his movement gains steam, the opposing rabbis, they're forced to flee. Flee for their lives. And everyone begins the preparation to go to Israel and to accept the new king. They sell their homes and their possessions, prepare to make Aliyah. And sadly, many of the Jews start to adopt some of the strange behaviors of their new master. Shabtai Tzvi made a call to arms. We're going to conquer Israel. We're going to conquer Jerusalem again. Problematically, of course, the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Empire, is not so keen about that because they are the stewards of Israel. And the sultan, he has him arrested and imprisoned. But even when he's imprisoned, he's given quite comfortable quarters and he's able to receive his followers and he's treated like a, like a dignitary, like a king. And of course, the fact that now not only is he Mashiach, but he's a suffering Mashiach, that bolstered his reputation. Ultimately, the sultan tells Shabtai Tzvi, you have two choices. Either we're going to execute you or you're going to convert to Islam. And Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam and becomes Aziz Mahmidi Afindi for the rest of his life, living under the protection of the sultan in great wealth. Of course, all the dreams of all his followers came crashing down like a house of cards. People are revolted. There's recriminations and disappointment sweeping the Jewish world. Of course, the majority of his supporters, they disavowed him and try to piece back their life together. Together, A small minority, they clunt him. Say, oh, this is all part of the plan. Some of them even themselves convert to Islam and find all kinds of ways to rationalize his apostasies. There's even books written to explain why he had to convert to Islam. It's all part of the plan. And this small group, they became called the Sabbateans. So there's people from Shabtai Tzvi. They actually endured for another century. And many of his followers started their own little branches of Sabbateanism. Notably, another false messiah, Jacob Frank, who was, was a Sabbatean. Uh, and, of course, that eventually becomes its own religion entirely. 
But I think it's safe to say that the aftershocks of this debacle continue until today. People, ever since they saw someone who was young, charismatic, intelligent, dabbling in Kabbalah, people got scared of Kabbalah. If you ever hear the idea that people don't study Kabbalah till they're 40, this is where it comes from. Because young, uh, precocious students of Kabbalah could go awry, apparently. At least that was, was what was concluded. So you have in the 18th century, 40 years after the Shabtai debacle, you have a young man born in Italy, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Young, charismatic, intelligent, studying Kabbalah. People look at him and say, this looks like another Shabtai Tzvi. And they ban him. But of course, the Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Lutzato, was one of the greatest leaders we've ever had. And visionaries, and innovators, and author of amazing books like the Way of God and the Path of the Just, Mesiel Sisharim. And unfortunately, you know, he had to flee with his family because they kicked him out because now everyone's wary. Everyone's, we're all skeptics and we're all paranoid thanks to Shabtai Tzvi. And even any innovator, innovators of any sort are always viewed skeptically since then. And even good ones, good innovations like the Hasidic movement that launched in the 18th century, that was viewed very suspiciously. Again, interested in Kabbalah, but Hasidism actually saved the Jewish people. And thanks to this debacle, they too were not accepted initially. Uh, moreover, there were accusations of people being secret followers of Shabtai Tzvi. Most notably, in the next century, there was a raging controversy that embroiled the Jewish world when one of the greatest sages of the time, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, accused another great sage, one of the greatest sages of all time, Rabbi Jonas and Ibeshitz, of being a secret Sabbatean. So you can imagine what that's like when two of the greatest rabbis of the generation one of them is accusing the other of being a secret Sabbatean. But that was the world that Shabtai Tzvi left, where everyone is suspect and we can't trust anyone. And sadly, many of the people who pinned all their hopes on Shabtai Tzvi, they lost their faith entirely. We see how disastrous and dangerous having false messiahs can be. Perhaps the greatest lesson we can draw from history is to not repeat uh, the blunders of the past. If one thing is clear is that the history of false messiahs show that there's tremendous inherent danger in it, hopefully history can serve as a cautionary tale to prevent us from making the same mistakes again. May we all merit to be there for the rebuilding of the temple. May we see the in-gathering of Jews from all over the world back to God, back to Torah, back to the Jewish nation. May we be there to witness the reestablishing of the Davidic monarchy, of Jewish law, Torah law over Israel. May we be there to see the sacrifices done in the temple, celebrate Pesach actually in Israel with the pilgrimages. And may we yet see the coronation of the real Mashiach May he come speedily 
in our days.